interesting testimony from Amy. He's had to face some of his handiwork this week. It was a good testimony. One of the questions that always comes up in people's minds is, why is there war? Why is there always disputes and problems in the world and everywhere people are killing each other? There's sickness, there's disease. What kind of an earth is this? And uh, to find out the root of the problem, we have to go back in time to the very beginning. And you'll see Nehemiah there. Nehemiah is saying that you, O Lord, alone have made the heaven and the heaven of heavens. That makes three heavens. And all with their host, the host is the angels, the earth and all the things therein, the seas and all that are therein, and you preserve them all, and the host of heaven worships you. So God's created a beautiful earth with angels, and there's no problems up till this point. <clears throat> but then is Ezekiel 28, verses 12 to 18. There's quite a bit to it. So I just want to highlight some of the principal things in, the, in this chapter on Ezekiel. It's describing a man who's a king of Tyrus. And it, there was a real person who was a king of Tyrus, but this is obviously not a human being. You can see it from the descriptions that it's actually a description of someone who's a, <coughs> who's a, a magnificent creature and he's full of wisdom. He's perfect in beauty. He's a very gifted musician. And he's actually an anointed cherub and a guardian of God's temple. So this is quite a, a magnificent personage. And he's one of the archangels. An arch simply means a ruling angel. There's three angels who are archangels, Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer. And this particular person's Lucifer. And you'll notice he's brilliant with worship. He's brilliant with anything to do with religion. He's very, very, very intelligent, and he's beautiful to look at. In fact, he was so beautiful, when they looked in the mirror, he agreed with himself. It goes on to describe him in 13 to 15, these two verses. They both quote him as being a created being. So God's created this archangel. And in verse 16 to 18 and 18, you find that he starts to foment rebellion. And he does it, and it's, and it's got in the verses that he trafficked and he made merchandise. Now, I don't know why the translators put words like trafficked and made merchandise in the scripture, because it's the same Hebrew word, and it means he was a talebearer and he was a slanderer. To slander someone is to tell lies behind their back or to degrade them behind their back. So this man made a practice of taking tales around and telling lies behind people's backs. And by doing this, he began to cause dissension amongst the angels. And here's the big problem. God's speaking to Lucifer and saying, Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations. You have said in your heart, and now here's the thing. He said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. 
I will sit in the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the clouds. I will be like the Most High. You notice all of these are an exertion of his will five times in all of these areas. And the contrast is Christ who said, not my will be done, but thy will be done to God. Here, it's not God's will, it's going to be my will because I'm beautiful, I'm clever, and I can do a better job than God, and I'll be like the Most High. And so he corrupts all around him. If you look at Revelation 12, 3 and 4, there appeared a wonder in heaven, a great red dragon. He has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on his head. He drew one-third of the stars of heaven and did cast them to earth. One-third of the angels were corrupted by this man. And as a result of his tail-bearing and his lies behind people's backs, he eventually got to the point where the people were no longer loyal to God, but he would get them and say, well, you know, you haven't got a good job here. I can give you a better one if you follow me. I'll make sure you get a promotion. And they believed him and followed him. And one-third of them rebelled against God. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels, these angels that Michael led, didn't rebel with Satan. And they fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought with the angels. He prevailed not. And his place was not found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, the old serpent called the devil and Satan. And he deceives the whole world. He's cast out into the earth, and the angels were cast out with him. That verse has not yet been fulfilled. But we're going to see it in our lifetime, I think. At the moment, what's, what's happened is there's three heavens. He's been cast out of heaven, but he's now in the midheaven. And we're on earth, so everything, every transaction between us and God has to go through the mid-heavens. And this is where all the problems arise with uh, getting answers to prayer, like Daniel prayed. And God said, the very day that you started praying, Daniel, I sent the answer. But Daniel didn't get it for 21 days. Why? Because the angels in the mid-heavens, who were supporting Satan, stopped the angels from God getting the message down. And it was only the prayer that got it through eventually. Now put in Colossians 1, 15 and 16. It says he's the image of the invisible God. This is now talking about Christ. He's the firstborn of every creature. It's an unfortunate uh, translation that the translators have put in because the Jehovah's Witness will use this verse to say, well, he's just firstborn, he's like anybody else. But it's not saying that. What it should have been saying was, he is the firstborn before every creature. And it goes on to say why. For by him all things were created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, the visible, the invisible, whether they are thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. Now that is the structure that God has created put in place to run his universe. It starts with thrones. Below the thrones are dominions or lordships. Below that are principalities and powers. 
Now, the principalities, that's the level where the archangels reigned. And the powers are simply the areas of responsibility where they operated those, those uh, <coughs> uh, activities. And Lucifer was given the responsibility for the earth. Now, because of the uh, rebellion, the rebellion didn't take place at thrones and dominions. The rebellion took place at the level of principalities and powers. And what Satan wanted, of course, was to get up there, get, promote himself rather than wait to be promoted by God. One of the other uh, areas which uh, are a great assistance to Satan is when the Pharisees were uh, talking with Jesus in Matthew 12. You'll find what Jesus was doing was he was casting out demons and healing the sick. And so they the Pharisees couldn't say anything positive to him, so they said, oh, you're doing that by the power of Beelzebub. Now, Beel is Lord, Zebub is flies. So the title was, he is the Lord of the flies. But the flies are the demons that needed to be cast out of the people. And Jesus was casting out these demons because they are allied to Satan. Just as the angels followed Satan, the people of earth have followed Satan, and they do it to this day. The whole world is deceived by him. The only people in this world who are not deceived are the Christians. Now, his activities are encompassed here with Zechariah 3.1. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before an angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand, to resist him. Now, here's, here's a man, he goes to God, he's in God's presence, and Satan's standing right beside him, and he's resisting everything that he does. He'll resist your prayers, he'll resist your work for God, he'll resist everything that you do in the context of Christ. If you try to get closer to Christ, he'll resist you. If you try to read his Bible, he'll resist you. That's his job, and he does it. 24-7, all the time, never stops. Revelation 12.10, I had a loud voice in heaven. Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. You imagine, young people, Every day of your life, Satan stands before God and he accuses you. You sin, he'll tell God you sinned. Every time. And he's doing it all the time. He's resisting you all the time. He's there constantly tempting you. And when you fall into the temptation and you sin, what does he do? Straight to God and say, look at that. She or he has just sinned. (laughs) It's a bit of a puzzle. (coughs) Puzzle. You know, I heard a young person asking the question, well, why did God create Satan? He's a terrible, terrible thing. But God didn't create Satan. He created a beautiful, perfect angel. And the he- heaven was running perfectly. Everything was running perfectly until pride entered into his heart. That was the first sin in this universe. And if you want a root cause of the sin... It's pride resulting in rebellion. 
And that rebellion has ricocheted down through the ages to this very day. Why does he do it? I mean, why? I'm some little girl, a boy. Why would he bother 24 hours a day accusing them before God? The only thing I've, I can think of, I heard a story once to try to explain it. And it's, it's like when Satan, when he rebelled, and he's got this pride, this huge pride. God's leaned down and got a big handful of dirt. He said, you see this Satan? This handful of dirt is going to replace you in heaven. And of course, when Adam comes along, his number one enemy is going to be Satan because Satan's looking at this guy and thinking, no way am I going to let that happen. But you see, God also would have said to him at the same time, well, you're going into the lake of fire for what you've done. Now, this is my speculation. This isn't Bible. I just can't understand why he's doing these things otherwise. He can't avoid going into the lake of fire. He knows that. But I think what he's done is, okay, if I keep accusing all these people of sin, I'll say to God, I'm going into the lake of fire for rebellion and sin, but they've done exactly the same thing. They've got to go into the lake of fire with me. And every person in this place, you can't go through life without sinning pretty regularly. So they've got to go into the lake of fire. Now how does God get around that problem? Because he's doing this day and night to try and delay his exit into the lake of fire. What he's doing is he's giving us Christ's righteousness. And it's not your righteousness that's going to get you to heaven. It's not you being good that's going to get you to heaven. It's going to be Christ's righteousness that will get you into heaven. And that's one of the major facts he will attack you on. He'll put you under condemnation every time you sin. Tell you, there you are, you're a sinner. You've failed as a Christian. No, you repent to God and you're covered by the robe of righteousness. It's Christ who's going to get you into heaven. And the condemnation is just Satan's help for you to repent of a sin that needs to be covered by the righteousness of Christ. I like this verse and I threw it in because I thought, you wouldn't want to play chess with God. I mean, he really gets in advance of the moves. This is, listen to this, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which is committed to me according to the commandment of our God, our Savior. You notice there, God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So before he even invented and created the world, he's already promised he's going to save it. Why? Because I think this is a conversation in the Godhead. Because who's he promising? There's no world there to promise anyone. There has to be someone in the Godhead. And we find it's his commandment of God our Savior. So the Godhead has said, look, If we create this man and woman, they're going to fall. And Jesus has said, well, I'll be the Savior. And God's fine, we'll go ahead and we'll create the world. And the whole Adamic race is God's 
God's goal for man to produce a perfect bride for his Christ. If you want to find out the contrast between Satan and his uh, exerting his will and the fact that he's only a created being, you only have to look at Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 says, The Lord possessed me. And that's, that's talking about wisdom. He possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning or ever the earth was. So he's always everlasting. And it's because it's, it's only, they're only using wisdom in Proverbs. But we find in Corinthians 1.24, To them who are called, both Jew and Gentile, Christ, the power of God, and it's the wisdom of God. So Christ is the wisdom in Proverbs 8. If you want to find out about Christ, read Proverbs 8. Now we get to the interesting part. <laughs> Genesis 3.1. It doesn't give you time frames for this. And I don't think... Satan just walked up to Eve and asked her three questions and had a munch of the apple. I think it might have taken quite some time. It could have been days, it could have been weeks, it might have been months, it could even have been years, I don't know. We don't have a time frame. But the serpent, Satan, he comes two ways. He comes as a dragon to physically kill you, which he does in a lot of the uh, overseas countries. Or he comes as a serpent and he's subtle. And he's more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord has made. And it's because of that subtlety that he is so successful, especially in the church, because that's his target. He's got everybody else deceived, but he hasn't got the church. So how is he going to get the church deceived? How does he work on them? It's got to be subtle. It's not going to be something you can immediately say, oh, yeah, I see what's going on. And what he's done with Eve, forget the words he says and the questions. They're not the issue. It's how he does it. He goes there and he talks to her and he just plants a little seed in her mind. And Satan does the same thing with you. Your mind, you think, are all your thoughts. Well, they are your thoughts. But also, Satan can put his thoughts into your mind. And a lot of the times when you think it's you thinking it, it's not, it's him. And he, all he will do is put on just that little seed. And then he'll try another seed. And he'll try another seed. See, he's copying Jesus. Jesus sows the seed in your heart. He sows it into your mind. And what he's after is exactly the same thing as he did with the angels. And he was successful. You put that seed in your mind and you look at the congregation. You say, well... Look at the pastor. He didn't talk to you this week. Did you see how long he talked to that other person over there? Just a little seed. That's all it is. Oh, there they'll go along another little seed. Look at that person there. They're smiling at that person next to them. They didn't smile when they talked to you. They don't like you. Just a little seed. Just a little seed. That person up there, they're talking behind your back about you. Do you know what they've been saying? 
very, very the bad things. And all these seeds, he's watering them and seeing if he can get a reaction and a response. What's he looking for? You get angry with someone. You begin to get upset with someone, causing division in the church, especially targeting the leadership. He wants to drive a wedge there. And all of these seeds are going into our mind all the time. And when we start to do things like holding a fence in our heart, he'll start to water that big time. All the time, it's just going in, going in. And you work on it, work on it, and work on it till he gets you to the point where you're just drifting away from the, <coughs> from the body of Christ. And then he'll bring you together. And the birds of a feather, all the other successful people that he's managed to convince us, this is a bad church, this is a rotten church. Look at these people, they're not nice, they're not friendly. You hear this all the time. You know what's been going on. Satan's putting his seeds in there. And the only way you can protect yourself from that is have a look at what David did. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.7 God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's another unfortunate word they've put in there. God has not given us a spirit of fear. That should be a spirit of timidity. I think Timothy's problem was timidity. And he's running a church and he's timid. Why is he timid? Satan's been putting the seeds in his mind. Now Paul's saying to come on Paul, you can't be timid like this. God hasn't given you a spirit of timidity. He's given you a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Let's look at the example of David because he's always a good example to follow. It's a big story, so what I'll do is I'll just give you the highlights of the story and tell you the story. David's young, young guy, he's minding the sheep. And his father sends him off and says, off you go, to the, take lunch to your brothers. They've gone off to war. Now he's got seven brothers, he's the eighth son. And when he gets to the battlefield, there's 30,000 chariots of the Philistine drawn up against Israel and more foot soldiers than he can count. And they've got this huge giant, 10, 11 feet tall, called Goliath. And he's standing out in front of everyone, challenging Israel, if you can beat our champion, we will (coughs) surrender to you. And this Goliath is mocking the children of Israel. And they're sitting there terrified, because why? Look at the amount of... This army, it's huge. You can never beat it. It's just, there's just too many, you can't even count them. And the 30,000 chariots, how can we possibly defeat that? So nobody, nobody was getting up. David took one look at it and thought, well, I'll fight him. What, look at the reaction from his brother Eliab. As soon as he said that, he attacked him. It's his own brother. He was angry. And his response was, you aren't able. You're only a youth. Your problem is you're proud. Your heart is wrong. These 
All of these statements were made by Eliab because he felt shamed that he is a young brother going to do what he wouldn't do. And when the person's under pressure like that, they'll lash out and they'll lash out at David. But David has now made the statement, I'll fight him. This is the enemy of his soul coming against him. This is Satan getting all his forces together and throwing them at David. Because the last thing he wants is David tackling Goliath. And so he throws this. And this is his brothers attacking him. His other brothers were the same. They all attacked him. Don't you do it. You're only a kid. Who do you think you are? And eventually, he ignores every single one of these attacks. He gets up to the king. And the king Saul does what he usually did. Gives him armor to to fight the war. He says, you need this armor. (laughs) This living foot giant there. And David tries it on and says, this is hopeless, I can't fight with this. See, what was Satan doing with that? If he couldn't turn you from 100% obedience to God and God's will, he'll get you to move 2%, 3% on something just a little better, better route, just a little bit less obedience. He'd have won the battle right there and then. And Satan that does, does that with you all the time. If you're in God's will and God's will is say, right, go straight down that road, and he'll offer you a better alternative. It'll take you quicker and easier, but it's not the way God told you to go. As soon as you do that and take the easy way, you're out of God's will, and he's won. So David now has, has been constantly attacked all the way through by intimidation after intimidation after intimidation. I noticed when Amy gave her testimony today, she had to push through the intimidation not to share with the kids, not to say no. The intimidation will come against you as soon as you try to move out in God. Remember what I said? He's resisting you 24 hours a day. Never gives up. It will come straight away. You see it in the the church, the... uh, you know, the, the, we have a time when we are open to God and the Spirit speaking to us in the church. What happens? We're waiting for God to speak and we're listening. Nothing happens. Why? Because as soon as you say that to the church, intimidation moves in and starts intimidating all the people. Don't say anything. You'll get the wrong thing. It's going to be wrong. You know what's going to happen if you get it wrong. What are people going to think? Don't do it this week. Do it next week. You'll be able to do it next week. Anything to get you to shut up and not move with God's Spirit when he wants you to move. That's intimidation all the time. Now he comes up against Goliath now. And Goliath, again, it's the intimidation thrown at him. The scorn, he's despised, he's threatened. And all through it, David kept his focus on God. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would dare to defy the armies of the Lord? That's how David saw it. This wasn't a battle of Israel getting a lot of troops together for a fight. This was the army of the Lord. And when he went against the giant, he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. 
It wouldn't have mattered if there'd been five giants there. You'd have just taken them all down because he was doing it in the name of the Lord and God wanted him to defeat the, the enemy. Now, God wants you to defeat the enemy and you can't defeat the enemy if you're going to let intimidation come against you. When it does, you've got to press through it. If you don't press through it, you just sit there in church for the rest of your life Wondering, I wonder if I should get a word. I wonder if I could do this. I wonder if I could get a prophecy. And it just doesn't happen. The Corinthian church, they had to shut them up and say, listen, just two or three of you have a go at uh, bringing the word and bringing uh, interpretation. Because everybody was flowing in the spirit. There wasn't any intimidation in the congregation. And that's how we would like to see it here. None of this intimidation closing people down and shutting them up. And I'd like everyone to stand up if you could. And what we want to do is, I want to see the church freed from this intimidation that comes against it. So that people are free to press into God and give it a go. If you get it wrong, so what? doesn't matter. If you've been feeling that intimidation in your life, I'd like you to come forward for prayer. If you've been feeling that intimidation when we're moving in the worship and praise and you'd like to move out but you felt that intimidation coming against you, come out in prayer. If you felt that and you want to press into God more and you know it's holding you back, come out and we'll get you prayed for. Break it off your life. You'll be sitting there and standing there now and the spirit of in intimidation is coming on you now and telling you, don't do it. Don't be silly. Don't move. You've got to press through that to press into God. 